Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest community, I'm uh, so excited to talk to you this week about this topic. You know, it's a little bit of a drill down on a couple of things, but but really the bigger topic is things that folks may not recognize that there's an ability to monetize in a deal. You know, there's there's things that people understand, even if they haven't done it, you know, whether it's buying or selling the assets of a company or the equity, the, you know, stock or membership interest in an LLC of a company. They understand, you know, buying and selling hard assets. Um you know, even, you know, I talked about licensing in the past, but there are, there are some things that, you know, people think of less. There's really one I'm going to focus on mainly, but I'll mention a couple of others just because um, there's too many folks out there who are actually doing what I would call, you know, all of the elements of a deal, except for not structuring it like a deal and, and not getting certain tax benefits and other benefits they can get if they structured it uh, differently. So, yeah, so the high level topic is, hey, you know, there's some things out there that you may have that are, let's call it an asset that you can monetize that you may not realize that you can monetize. Um, the first place that I want to start is something that I have mentioned a little bit before, but mainly in connection with licensing, and that's intellectual property. Um, you know, a lot of folks, whether you are, uh, you know, especially nowadays, I mean, listen, um, if we're talking about, I know we, we fortunately have listeners in various parts of the world and various parts of the country in the U.S., and this is not, uh, you know, true everywhere. I mean, certainly, you know, outside the U.S. and in certain parts outside of big cities, you know, there are still people who make stuff. Uh, in fact, I'm down right now as I'm recording this at a at a, at a, at a con- at an entrepreneurs organization retreat um, with some of my East uh, Bridge uh, members and also with the Latin American conference members and you know, met some folks uh, from Latin America who still do a lot of manufacturing, but in the U.S. at least, and certainly in a lot of the big cities in the U.S. where there's a lot of population and certainly where a lot of business owners are, you know, most of us don't make anything anymore. Most of us have service businesses, have online businesses, have things where we're providing, uh, you know, where there's mainly service-based businesses. And in those cases, it's often easy to think that you don't have assets, right? I mean, there's not a lot of assets often that are showing on your balance sheet. Um, if you look at a financial statement, right, you know, you don't have a lot in, in furniture, fixtures, fixtures and equipment, you know, what they call FFE. And maybe you've seen that there's a goodwill line on your balance sheet potentially, but, you know, it's hard to think of that because it's, that's an intangible asset, not a tangible asset. It's easy to think, well, yeah, I can sell my company maybe, but I don't have anything else that I could, that I could sell. Uh, so on the intellectual property side, you know, a while back, we had a solo cast on licensing and how you could take advantage of the value of that asset, right? Whether it's a trademark or a copyrighted system or a trademark name or, or a patented, um, you know, product and how you might be able to license 
that for, uh, you know, to, to have an ongoing uh, income stream and get royalties and, and things like that. And that's an underutilized asset. But also those assets are potentially saleable, uh, independent of the, of the operating of your company. In fact, you know, it may be something you develop that's ancillary or just a different side of your company. And really what you're selling is that intellectual property, right? That special formula that you've developed or that brand that you've developed. So you can certainly monetize uh, that beyond licensing it, you know, in terms of a sale. And that's something to think about. But the one I, I, I said, there's one I want to focus on even more. And that is this, what we call a personal goodwill sale. And I, might, I think I've mentioned this, but we haven't delved deep into it. Uh, and I want to have a, a solo cast that focused mainly on it because most people think if they're employed by somebody that they do not have an asset to sell, right? Because if you're employed by somebody, then the client relationships, the customer relationships are basically owned or you know with the employer. So when you leave, even if you have an ability to take business with you, most people will do those kind of transitions in a way where they're joining someone else, you know, where it's just part of what they're bringing along and they get a salary, you know, they're hired as an employee or as a contractor and they get paid. And part of what they get paid for is the fact that they have an ability to bring business with them. And, you know, they, they do monetize that, um, those relationships in terms of income, right? Because, you know, when somebody's going to employ you, if I, if you, I mean, listen, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, somebody who, you know, has a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or five hundred thousand, or you know, big firms they're looking for people with a million dollars in business. Um, when they when they're looking to hire somebody laterally, let's say a lateral partner at a big law firm, right? You know, they're not going to bring you in unless you have a certain amount of business. Certainly not to make you a partner, right, and get you some equity. Now, in some ways, you theoretically could monetize that. You know, if you're getting equity in exchange for the business you bring in, right, um, then that's, you know, a, a way uh, that you eventually monetize. But in, in professional services firms, the way you do that is you're not usually not getting any kind of big check or any kind of real check up front. You're not getting paid out for that IP you're bringing. You just, you just may be able to, you know, uh, have a partnership interest in, in the company. In other situations, you're not getting any equity. You know, many people come and one of the, the, the values they bring is they have some sort of level of relationships, connections, book of business, in various fields and they just get hired, right? And yeah, sure, it, it helps in terms of how much somebody's willing to pay you and their uh, level of desire to bring you in. But what it doesn't do is allow you to monetize what is really an asset that, you know, and you may not think of it that way. So let me give you a very specific example. As many of you know, we do a lot in financial services, a lot in the wealth management space. And this is not only applicable to that space, but it's where we've done it most, um, although we've done it in other areas. So we have uh, many situations where, uh, let's say somebody is working at a bank, warehouse, trust company, or even an independent RA firm or uh, independent broker dealer, uh, and they're in an employment or contractor model. So they do not own a entity, right? They don't own the RA firm. Certainly, if they're working at Merrill Lynch or Lloyd Stanley, UBS, or any of the banks uh, or any of the uh, IBDs, you know, they're most often, certainly at the warehouses, banks, in a, an employment model. And depending upon the IVD platform, possibly an, apply, an employment model. Um, so the client relationships are with the firm, right? That's who has the contract. That's who, there may be even certain restrictions on uh, people taking business that there are ways to get around. And so when somebody is leaving those places, 
and joining a, another existing business, they will most often uh, come in as, as an employee and then negotiate whatever, whatever split they get. Um, maybe they can negotiate for some equity. Maybe they're going to get some sort of amount of money up front in, in a forgivable loan structure, which is, you know, traditionally what the wirehouses have done in that industry. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of situation where they get money up front. Yeah. I mean, they may get significant money up front, even millions of dollars sometimes, but it is in a loan format and it's forgivable over time. So it, it um, you know, if you're there, let's say it's over five years or seven years or nine years, you know, it forgives proportionally each year that you're there. And then you actually have income as the employee every time that that note is forgiven. So, you know, if you take a million dollars over five years, it's $200,000 a year. The first year, $200,000 forgives and you end up with $200,000 in income, right? And that's ordinary income, by the way. So ordinary income rates. There's another way to structure that those transactions, which um, is becoming more popular. We actually do a lot of it but very often when we do it, it's, it's at our suggestion. It's not that the client has really realized they can do this. And um, what that is, is you can take that business you have and actually sell it as an asset. Now you say, you might say, well, how is that possible, Corey? Because you just said that the client relationships, that that goodwill, that those that client list is really owned by my employer, right? by the Merrill Lynch or the Morgan Stanley or the independent broker dealer, or take it outside this industry, any industry where somebody is an employee and where the contracts with the customers or the, or the clients are with the, um, the employer. You know, what do I have to sell? Well, there's something called personal goodwill. Now, that's a term, you know, that is related to the tax code because one of the, right, contractually, we can create whatever we want. The question is how... Is it going to be treated for the tax code purposes, right? Is it going to be treated as if you're selling an asset, meaning that you can get capital gains treatment on the money you get as opposed to ordinary income, like I described in the forgivable loan situation? And the answer is yes. Now, the, I will tell you the IRS doesn't love these transactions, meaning not, not that they're illegal or anything wrong with them, but you got to be very careful and you got to structure them and you have the right language and you have to justify the valuation of the personal goodwill. But having said that, if you control a, you know, a book of business with a million dollars in revenue, right? Or a client base with a million dollars in revenue, just say. And even though those clients are contracted, those customers are contracted with your employer, the fact that you have the ability uh, to move them. And by the way, you know, my little asterisk here, right? I am an attorney. I'm not your attorney. This is not your specific legal advice for you. You need to get legal advice on this. I mean, on every anything we talk about on this podcast. And especially on this, because this is tax driven, you need some, you know, tax folks and corporate folks to understand that. Um, so we always actually, even, you know, every deal that I have on this, just because of how sensitive it is, uh, you have to do it right. I always have my tax guy, you know, taking a look at it, right? Even if we've done it 20 times before, you know, over the last few months, we always want them, you know, to check, double check and triple check that language. So in any case, but you can, if you really have those, that kind of relationship, that's what the personal goodwill is. The personal goodwill says, yes, we understand that the customer or client might be contracted or is contracted with, not with you personally, but with your employer. So that on a balance sheet, that's where that asset is sitting or contractually, legally, that's where that relationship is set. But we also understand that because of your personal relationship with these clients, because of the level of trust that you built, because of the practical you know, situation, if you leave, it's likely a lot of them 
if not all of them, right, or a high percentage of them will leave with you. And there's value in that. And not only is there value in that for somebody to just pay you a better salary or be willing to hire you, but we will actually be able to treat that as a saleable asset to another party under which, you know, pursuant to which you will be able to treat the money you get in exchange for it at capital gains rates. So very simply, how it works is very much like any, you know, once you understand that that's an asset class that can be sold and that can be sold to capital gains rates, it's very similar to anything else, right? It's, you know, whether you're selling equipment or whether you're selling, you know, a, a client list because you actually own that asset as the company owner or whatever kind of other asset you're selling, in this case, you are selling personal goodwill. And that's what is being transferred pursuant to a asset purchase or asset sale agreement or personal goodwill sale agreement, whatever it's titled. And that's the asset you're selling. Somebody's paying you for that either up front and or, you know, up front and over time. For your purposes, uh, you take in capital gains, you know, when you get it, you might be able to take it on an installment sale, right? Or be getting the payments over time. So you pay the tax over time, all of that kind of stuff. Very similar if you sold a piece of machinery, and, uh, you know, you paid part up front, part over time, and, you know, it would be the same, you know, a similar approach. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Now for the buyer, right? What happens with the buyer? Well, you know, there's, there's some negatives for the buyer, but obviously, and this is often the case, right? I mean, it's very rare. In fact, that pretty much if somebody's getting a tax benefit, Someone else is getting, you know, the, the, the tax treatment is a little more de- detrimental to them from certain points of view. So uh, from the buyer's point of view, so let's take a scenario where you're coming in, you're leaving someplace, you have a customer client base, uh, somebody else is hiring you, but also instead of hiring you, they're going to buy, uh, do this personal goodwill sale or purchase on their, on their, from their point of view. Well, what's the difference for them? Well, the difference for them is that if they have just hired you, any comp they pay you is, is um, ordinary income to you, but that means that it's an expense. It's a deduction to them. So they get, they get an expense deduction in the time that they pay it. In the situation where they are doing the forgivable loan or it forgives every year, and you know, I gave that example where it's a million dollars over five years, $200,000 a year. Well, that first year, the $200,000 gets forgiven you take in income of $200,000, meaning the employee, the person who had the relationships and brought them in, but the employer, your new employer gets a deduction for that $200,000 because it's now paid out to you as ordinary income, basically effectively comp or deferred comp, how you want to look at it. And they get a deduction for that 200. Well, if you've structured it as a personal goodwill sale where you're getting capital gains treatment, the difference is now that the buyer, your employer, has to capitalize that. What does that mean? That means, unlike my scenario where they're getting a $200,000 a year deduction, right, on the million over five years, if they pay you a million in purchase price, because they're buying an intangible asset, the IRS says that that asset is a 15-year asset, right? It's goodwill. So any goodwill is amortized over 15 years. So what does that mean? Let's take my million-dollar example. 
even if, let's say the payment terms are the million dollars over five years as a purchase, they're not going to be able to deduct that million over five years. They're going to need to capitalize that million and they're going to need to take it over a 15-year amortization schedule. So if you do the million you know, divided by 15, that's the amount that they're going to take, which is obviously a lot less than a million divided by five, right? They're not going to be able to take $200,000 a year. You're going to be able to take essentially one third of $200,000 a year as uh, amortization, you know, when they amortize that goodwill. So for them, they don't get the, it takes them 15 years to get the tax benefit as opposed to five. And, you know, they're capitalizing it. And that allows you as the seller of that personal goodwill to get capital gains treatment on it. So obviously, listen, if they were not thinking about structuring it that way, or if you are an employer, and want to make your company, listen, it's tough to find good people these days, right? So this could be a good incentive from your point of view to say, hey, we can structure a deal with somebody that we really want to hire who has a book of business potentially as a goodwill uh, purchase, which will be tax beneficial to them. Yes, we understand it's going to take us longer, 15 years to write it off, but we're willing to make that investment because we need that. We want that talent, not to mention talent that's bringing business to us. Right. So you can distinguish yourself as a employer, acquirer is what it will become by uh, structuring, potentially structuring it that way, especially in a competitive market for people who, who control business. So, you know, it's an interesting thought. And it's something, again, that's um, very unutilized. Most people would not think if they're hiring somebody with business that they can you know, buy that and, and, and the person doesn't own the company. Um, that they can, you know, buy that asset. Uh, you know, they don't even, most people don't even think that that's, there's an asset there, right? They think, oh, the guy, you know, the person, the one man, the woman's got great, uh, you know, great uh, relationships. That's a benefit for me as an employee. Yeah, maybe I'll help monetize them. I'll give them uh, sales commissions or other, you know, bonuses or things like that when they bring in business. But maybe nowadays when it's very competitive, one of the ways you can help attract key people who've got businesses is to help them monetize that uh, business in a sale. Now, one thing that's important to, to, to note here, and there are a number of things, so we're not gonna cover them all here. Remember, you gotta get your own advice. This is a complicated area. But one key point is, if you're gonna buy the personal goodwill of somebody, which is basically their relationship with their customers or clients, in order to really justify the transaction properly for taxes, you've gotta really own that business. So in other words, what's gotta come with that are restrict what us lawyers call restrictive covenants, meaning non-solicits, non-competes. So if you really bought an asset, right, you're gonna not gonna want the seller to be able to go use that asset, right, right after you buy it to your detriment. So, well, you know, if you set this up and the employee still has the ability to come and go and easily take that business with them when they leave, then it's gonna be tough to justify it as a personal goodwill sale under which you have paid money uh, in purchase price because. It's logical that somebody who would do that would protect themselves. So these deals do come with restrictive covenants, non-solicits, non-competes for you know a material period of time to really show that the business is locked up and that the buyer, the new employer, has actually bought that asset for real as opposed to somebody being able to take it with them if they leave tomorrow. If your model is that people can come and go whenever they want and you don't want to you know change that model for this for these purposes then a personal goodwill sale will probably not work will pretty much not work so listen i i'm not gonna there's a lot we can get into delve more deeply but really you know you need to you should get advice on this but i just want folks to start thinking about hey there are assets out there 
whether it's the intellectual property scenario or whether it's the personal goodwill scenario, that people can monetize if you are on the side of the person who has the relationships or the IP, or that you can structure if you're on the hiring side in a way that would be tax favorable to them, not to you, um, but it might be worth it for you, right? To attract key people to be able to do that. One of the things that I've talked about for over 160 episodes for, for over three years on this podcast, and the reason we started this podcast is to just have people think about all of these different types of deals that can be done and to expand their radar and to start, you know, having that deal maker mindset and just to understand that deals are not all just big mergers and acquisitions and big financing deals, private equity and you know, venture capital deals and that kind of stuff. Yet there are so many different deals out there can be that can be done. And you know, the, and that um, doing deals to help grow your business, right? Inorganic growth. Deal-driven growth is something that uh, I believe too few companies use. And if you look at any of the companies that have grown significantly, yes, they're, they're usually great at organic growth at sales and marketing, um, but they also usually have a inorganic growth, a deal-driven growth strategy. You know, whether you, if you're a listener who's been thinking, well, I'm not really ready for buying some, some company or, you know, doing a major other kind of deal, well, this may be one, you know, that will work for you, Right. Look, look at key people you want to bring on in your industry. Maybe you can distinguish yourself and get somebody who might be more inclined to go somewhere else where, you know, you can say, hey, I can actually help you monetize what, what you've created here. They may, they probably don't even realize they have an asset that's saleable uh, and I can do it in a way that's tax advantage for you. So just another thing to think about, another potential deal that you can do, these goodwill uh, sales or purchases, depending on what side you're on and a way to encourage you to think, hey, maybe there's, other things that I don't know, uh, right? Other deals that can be done that I haven't really, you know, thought through yet. You know, just open up your mind. Hey, uh, you know, this we, we do. Like I said, we're doing a lot of these now, and probably uh, they've been around for a while. I'm not saying it's a new thing, but certainly, certainly in the high level, you know, the wealth management space, especially, uh, we're finding that this has become much more popular, and we're. And not every, um, uh, you know, a lot of businesses and frankly, you know, a lot of lawyers in the space don't really understand these kind of deals. But if you do understand them and they fit your circumstances, they could be really great. So with that, folks, I'm going to um, end this week's episode. Uh, always love doing these solo casts. I have another one coming up in, in four weeks. Um, as most of you know, the rhythm is three guest interviews and then a, and then a solo cast. Definitely check out our subscriber base uh, has been growing so significantly recently. It's, it's really, really great that the message is getting out to more and more people. We'd love you to share, share this, you know, give more people access to this. Uh, I love talking deals, as you know, and I appreciate all of you. Have a great week. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.